sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, will we be discussing uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Also going to be touching on recent protests inside Ecuador and what that could mean for the country's trajectory. Also going to be discussing media distortions of Nicaragua. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, were election workers in Fulton County, Georgia, on November 3rd, 2020. They were doing what they have done after many elections for Shea for at least 10 years, and that was counting ballots. While they were in the State Farm Arena counting ballots after the election, standard security video of the ballot counting operation was used by Donald Trump and his co-conspirators to allege that the two women in particular committed election fraud. At a hearing of Georgia lawmakers on December 3rd, 2020, a volunteer Trump campaign attorney, Jackie Pick, said that the two Fulton County election workers, then unnamed, had pulled ballots for Biden out of suitcases hidden under counting tables and illegally counted them. The suitcases are actually standard secure bins that ballots are stored in inside tamper-proof bags when counting is not completed and those ballots have not yet been counted. The ballots were retrieved from the bins because the election workers thought they would continue counting the next day, but they were instructed after they had prepared to pack up and go home that they needed to stay and continue counting through the night. The full surveillance video and an investigation into the allegations confirms this. But Jackie Pick identified the two women as, quote, the lady with the blonde braids, which is Shea Moss, and an older woman with the name of Ruby on her shirt. And that's Ruby Freeman, Moss's mother. And Ruby Freeman often wore her signature Lady Ruby T-shirts, which is the name people in her community have called her for the woman's clothing shop that she has owned for years. Then Rudy Giuliani appeared at another hearing in Georgia with lawmakers on December 10th and named the women as he showed snippets of the video calling them crooks who obviously stole votes. He falsely claimed that the video showed them engaging in surreptitious illegal activity and acting suspiciously like drug dealers passing out dope, he said. Then, in a telephone call with Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State at the time, in January 2021, in which Donald Trump repeatedly demanded that Raffensperger help him find 11,800 votes that Raffensperger kept telling him were not there to be found, Trump also named Ms. Freeman 18 times, calling her a known political operative, accusing her and her daughter repeatedly of fraud, calling them professional vote scammers and hustlers. All of these lies about these two black women were repeated and expanded upon in right-wing outlets like One America News and the Gateway Pundit. Even elected officials joined in on the vilification of these two women, with Georgia Republican Congressman Jody Heiss retweeting 
completing the video with the comment, quote, caught on candid camera. Say it with me, F-R-A-U-D, end quote. The women's addresses and that of the family's 70-plus-year-old matriarch were posted on social media platforms and circulated among Trump's supporters. They began receiving a deluge of threatening racist messages on their cell phones, in their emails, on social media. Strangers showed up at their homes and banged on their doors at all hours of the day and night, threatening them with jail, arrest, and worse. Shea Moss's sons were targeted with violence racist text messages on their cell phones. Trump supporters even showed up at Moss's grandmother's home and tried to force their way into her house, demanding to know where the other two women were so they could make a citizen's arrest. In her understandably emotional and tearful testimony before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection yesterday, Shea Moss recounted some of the threats that she and her mother received. Visibly nervous, Miss Moss said that the hundreds, if not thousands, of threats were all violent, but many were also racist. Among them were things like, quote, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. And those two should be strung up from the nearest lamppost and set on fire. I'm glad that Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman testified yesterday. Their horrifying experience with Trump's rabid and violent supporters needed to be revealed. But here is where the committee members dropped the ball, because they should have responded to the terrorism the women experienced by contextualizing the role that racist terrorism and violence has always played in denying black people full and equal rights throughout this country's history, and that what was done to those women was just a continuation of that. They should have brought up the more than 2,000 black victims of lynchings killed between the end of the Civil War in 1865 and the collapse of federal efforts to protect the lives and voting rights of black Americans in 1876, which drastically reduced black voter registration and participation in the immediate aftermath. They should have noted that more racist violence toward black people swept the country like a wave in 1919 after World War I, with black soldiers coming back to the U.S. refusing to be treated as though they were not citizens with any rights after they just fought in a war for this country abroad. They should have said that racist violence through lynchings, but also through intimidation and terrorism, continued well into the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s, all to keep black people from realizing full enfranchisement as citizens in this country. But they did not. What they did instead was to offer platitudes to the two women, expressing apologies for the terrorism they endured, but thanking them for their service to the state of Georgia, the country, and to democracy. And they all reverted to the lie that what the women experienced is not America. It's not who we are or what we stand for. But that's just not true. The history makes that clear. And these women's experience makes it clear also. The two women have sued Gateway Pundit and One America News for defamation and have settled those lawsuits. I don't know if they are suing Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, Jackie Pick, and everyone else who defamed them and made them the targets of the terror campaign they endured, but I honestly hope they are. What I do know is that the people who engaged in threatening the women 
doxing them and their families, showing up at their homes, threatening violence against them and their children, have largely not been held accountable. Despite the women repeatedly showing the evidence of the threats and filing multiple police reports about them to the police in Cobb and Fulton counties in Georgia where they live. The committee members should have noted that this is how fascism operates in America, especially in regard to black victims, where the police provide no protection against racist terrorism because there are plenty of sympathizers and collaborators with the racist terrorists among them. But they did not. And it's a travesty that they didn't especially since the hearing took place on the day that James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman were tortured and murdered by the KKK in Neshoba County, Mississippi, in 1964 for registering black people to vote. The entire universe seemed to be lining everything up for representatives of this government in this country to confront the racist and fascist underpinnings of this country at that hearing yesterday. And instead, they continued to ignore it. Because that is exactly what this country is, always has been, and has always done. Follow Luke Bond Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Bond Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Nick Stender, a member of the Chicago Teachers Union and an activist with Reds in Ed. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And Nick, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden will soon be embarking on uh, a tour of the uh, uh, Middle East. Uh, I actually think it took place or excuse me, I think it's set to take place in July uh, with different stops, uh, including in Saudi Arabia, where he is set to uh, have a meeting with none other than Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia, both historically and in the contemporary moment, and even what we've heard from uh, the Biden administrations that it pertains to uh, Saudi Arabia, I think is um, pretty noteworthy, uh, both in terms of uh, Washington's relationship with Riyadh and uh, the impact that has on other uh, geopolitical issues. And you recently published a piece about this, uh, Nick, in uh, Liberation News entitled Biden meet with genocidal Saudi dictator exposes hypocrisy of, quote, democratic foreign policy. So someone you could break down sort of the significance of this uh, upcoming meeting uh, with uh, Biden and Salman and really his Middle East trip in general. And what do you think it evidences about U.S. foreign policy? Well, ever since the start of the Cold War and the end of the Second World War, Saudi Arabia has been a key U.S. ally within the Middle East, acting as um, a conduit for U.S. imperialist interests in the area, acting as a megaphone for a type of Islam, which is uh, extremely reactionary um, and also not really consistent with the tenets of Islam itself, um, and then also supporting uh, the puppet dictatorship of the uh, hereditary monarchical uh, House of Al Saud, who, whose recent 
I guess, progeny is Mohammed bin Salman, one of the most brutal dictators of the modern era, um, famous for the war in Yemen, the uh, mass execution of uh, hundreds of people within his royal family and outside of the royal family. Um, so a kinslayer, in addition to being uh, just a uh, reprehensible figure all around, and then also famous for the um, dismembering of journalist and critic of the Saudi government, Jamal Khashoggi, in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. So while Biden is playing up the quote-unquote anti-democratic and anti-authoritarian, uh, excuse me, an authoritarian nature of uh, the U.S. adversaries of Russia and China in styling the U.S. policy towards these two countries as, quote, anti-authoritarian. Um, here he is meeting with uh, one of the most brutal dictators in the entire world. Uh, and that just entirely exposes uh, the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy and how behind all of the smokescreen of human rights and democracy, there's only naked self-interest for the U.S. capitalist class and their political representatives. Yeah, what has the Biden administration said about uh, the uh, history of human rights abuses like, you know, mass beheadings uh, that have gone on in Saudi Arabia in light of this, uh, you know, uh, feel good seeming uh, tour that he is uh, undergoing, not just in Saudi Arabia, but he's also stopping in Israel, uh, the West Bank, Bank occupied Palestinian territory, as well as Saudi Arabia. What what does Biden say about the actual human rights abuses of the people that uh, he is meeting that he's continuing a relationship with? When it comes to Israel, there's basically nothing said about the genocidal policy of the Israeli uh, settler colonialist Zionist occupying force um, in the land of uh, historic Palestine except that Israel is our rock-solid ally and will defend them to the last. When it comes to Saudi Arabia, the picture is somewhat more cloudy and muddled. Um, under intense pressure from activists, Biden had been forced to make some sort of uh, narrative concessions to um, the people who are criticizing the Saudi government, saying that he would no longer support the war in Yemen, saying that he would uh, not meet with Mohammed bin Salman, saying that uh, he was a dictator and that he was a brutal authoritarian. However, here we are, and it's 2022. The gas prices across the world are going up as a result, I might add, of the uh, incredibly aggressive and failed U.S. policy to sanction Russia into oblivion and cut it out of the international market. Um, and now Biden is forced to meet with Mohammed bin Salman so that uh, he can try to reduce some of the inflation woes and energy uh, crisis that's been gripping the world. So uh, it's the classic instance of realpolitik coming back um, to really assert itself over the human rights narrative that the Biden administration had previously been forced to adopt because of the uh, incredible disgust that the people of the United States and of the world feel towards Mohammed bin Salman uh, and the Saudi royal family. Um, I'll also just add to in a, a recent article in The Hill, one of Biden's, uh, excuse me, one of the, the members of the think tanks that you know, really run the ideological centers of D.C. Um, said that dealing with Mohammed bin Salman and these uh, dictators is an unfortunate fact of today's complex world. And so it is indeed a complex world, but one in which for the capitalist class anyway, there is seemingly no principle that uh, is 
so inviolable that they are not interested in um, violating it for the sake of profit, and then also so that they can uh, increase their um, geopolitical power in a very strategic region, primarily to counter the independent government of Iran, who has historically, since the revolution of uh, 1979 that overthrew the U.S.-backed proxy government of the Shah, has remained independent of the United States uh, and seen U.S. uh, proxies within the region, including Israel and the Saudi government, as uh, being a force for uh, the empire and U.S. interests in the area, um, and against the legitimate uh, indigenous interests of the people of the Middle East. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, the war in Yemen, Nick, and I feel like that's got to be one of the most glaring examples of uh, the hypocrisy of the U.S. as Washington supports Saudi Arabia in this war that has brought about uh, an out-and-out humanitarian crisis in Yemen with just an incredible uh, amount of uh, suffering. I mean, you note um, in your piece that uh, uh, a U- United Nations estimate at the end of 2020 uh, put the death toll of the war at 200 133,000 people. But as we typically know with these things, that could very well be an an undercount. You know what I mean? And you also note that uh, the the United Nations Office of Humanitarian Affairs reported that about 80 percent of Yemen's population. So we're talking about 24 million people are in need of serious humanitarian assistance and things like this. And so, I mean, I mean, it's just so obvious that the United States only cares about about, quote unquote, democracy or human rights in so far as they could be, you know, weaponized to advance U.S. interest. And if they uh, uh, establish, you know, relationship with countries who are obviously uh, violators and notorious and, and documented violators of human rights abuses, well, that's actually just fine, because at the end of the day, who's going to really do anything to the U.S. anyway? You know what I mean? And so it just feels like U.S. imperialism likes to portray itself as as, you know, uh, a dove when it's really a hawk, uh, portrays itself like a lamb when it's really a wolf. You know what I mean? And the people of Yemen and the people uh, and people all over the world uh, suffer the consequences because of this. Yes, that's precisely correct. Of course, any suffering in any conflict is awful and must be condemned. And it's only through the creation of a social system such as socialism that people's needs will be able to uh, be met and we can finally eliminate uh, war, um, hardship, poverty, and the suffering of humanity. However, uh, we should always point out the incredible hypocrisy with which the capitalist governments of the world selectively choose whose lives matter to them. With the war in Ukraine, of course, there's been um, wall-to-wall coverage in the corporate media about refugees from Ukraine, uh, about the suffering of the people in that country due to the war, um, which, again, the United States has pushed the country into after swatting away olive branch after olive branch. Um, and then when it comes to Yemen, well, very little coverage, very little uh, talk about the disgusting humanitarian crisis, which has been a force in that country by the Saudi invasion, which the United States is also supported to the hilt. So a little bit of background into the conflict first um, and then into the humanitarian uh, side of it. Uh, the conflict started when, and it's, of course, like a one that's constantly shifting, and you could say that it had been brewing for a long time, but uh, started when the uh, Arab Spring occurred in many different countries throughout um, the Middle East. There were protests against the government, Saleh, 
at the time who was overthrown and then later uh, executed in the chaos of the transition period. Um, there was a, uh, a religious clan grouping known as the Houthis, which rose to dominance and created a, um, a Shia-dominated pact political movement that was trying to align itself more closely with Iran, and the Saudis ended up invading the country using uh, mercenary armies composed of, uh, well, pretty much desperate people from Africa, and pr- traditionally and primarily from uh, the area of the Sudan. And so through the uh, invasion of the country and the ruthless bombing campaign and genocide carried out from above with the full logistical backing of the U.S. Air Force, um, the Saudis have been able to wreck the infrastructure of the country, targeting uh, agricultural uh, sites, targeting water treatment sites, targeting hospitals, electricity generation, Um, All the civilian infrastructure that people require to survive has been deemed a legitimate target by the United States and by their Saudi puppets. And so the refueling, target acquisition, and intelligence support that the U.S. has provided Saudi Arabia has really made them uh, a co-belligerent in the war, a full partner. And we have to recognize that that is primarily because they think that they're fighting against uh, Iranian influence in the region, which of course is not true. I mean, the Houthis really are a, a national liberation force and represent not simply like the narrow interests of the Shiite groups within Yemen, but um, the interests of the entire Yemeni population uh, united against Saudi invasion. Uh, but uh, the reasons for the entry into the war of are, of course, just like a smokescreen for the desire to dominate the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula by U.S. imperialism uh, and their proxy governments. Yeah, and you know, as you were talking, I was ta- I was thinking about um, something that you, you mentioned a little earlier, and that's, you know, these pronouncements that we've seen um, from the Joe Biden administration about how, you know, supposedly the great battle, I guess, facing humanity is that between, you know, so-called uh, democracy and so-called uh, autocracy, with democracy, of course, being represented by, you know, uh, the gallant, uh, uh, civilized uh, uh, West and autocracy. You know, uh, being sort of exemplified by, you know, mostly global South countries like China or Cuba or Venezuela or Iran and what have you. You know what I mean? And it seems that, you know, we've sort of gone from the Cold War to the war on terror and all these sorts of things to sort of this new um, uh, uh, epic in uh, history, if you will, where imperialism seeks to continue to insert to assert itself even as it is uh, uh, crumbling. But what's clear is that, you know, uh, uh, the capitalist class are sort of um, abusing and exploiting these ideas of democracy and human rights and um, uh, uh, sovereignty and really sort of just sort of uh, using the language opportunistically, even while acting in uh, precisely the contrary way. You know what I mean? And so when we have a look at the geopolitical uh, situation here, Nick, I mean, it's just clear that really an entirely new sort of dispensation is what's needed. And I think that that's why we've been seeing a strengthening ties and relationships 
and shifting dynamics amongst the different governments and countries who are attempting to develop some kind of alternative to uh, uh, the unipolar world under U.S. hegemony. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's that kind of reality that we should really be organizing around it and fighting for. Otherwise, this kind of hypocrisy from the U.S. will continue to be, you know, the dominant feature of world politics. Yes, precisely. And I will also just add in terms of terms that are twisted um, by these, uh, you know, so-called like Democrats, really capitalist authoritarians of the West. Um, I would say that international law and human rights are ones that are also very much uh, distorted. Uh, in the history of international law, has only been uh, African leaders, I believe, and also leaders of former socialist countries like Milosevic that have been tried in The Hague uh, and sentenced and put in jail. What we really need is international law to be applied across the board to war criminals like Mohammed bin Salman uh, and to the war criminals like uh, Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, Lloyd Austin, all the imperialists in the Pentagon who are absolutely complicit in the murder of 233,000 Yemenis and perhaps the starvation of many millions more. So we have to expand these concepts and strengthen the uh, tools and the methods of international law in order to uh, prevent their distortion and perversion by the imperialists. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're discussing uh, the latest protest happening inside Ecuador. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Martin Varese, a social media manager with People's Dispatch, sociologist and frequent collaborator with the independent Ecuadorian media outlet Revista Crisis. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to, to be in your program. Absolutely. And we're happy to have you, Martin. And, you know, a massive protest uh, inside Ecuador um, are entering its uh, second week in defiance of a state of emergency. And these uh, uh, protests, of course, being aimed at the, uh, the right wing government of Guillermo Lasso and I think a number of his policies. And Martin, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, what is the broader context behind these protests? What's motivating them? Uh, what are these demands and uh, uh, why is it that things have unfolded up until this point? Yes, uh, of course. Um, so basically, uh, the protests are uh, against the neoliberal policies of the right wing government, as you said, uh, Guillermo Lasso, who's the president, he's a former, quote unquote, former banker. Uh, he still has uh, big ties with uh, banks and uh, big companies in Ecuador. And um, people are protesting mainly against uh, unemployment, the hike of prices, and uh, insecurity in the country. The country has been living uh, a big uh, amount of uh, criminality, a hike of in criminality, uh, narco traffic, 
and the government doesn't seem to have a, 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 an actual response to that other than militarization militarization and, and uh, police response to the to this uh, crisis and um, in the economic sector the the response of the government is uh, cuts uh, budget cuts for uh, all the main sectors education health uh, housing and uh, cuts of um, of uh, people who work for the government and for the state. So these budget cuts have made uh, a big uh, hike in prices. If we relate to the to the protests in October 2019, uh, the protests were, were against uh, the Lenin Moreno government, but uh, the Guillermo Lasso is continuing the same policies as Lenin Moreno. And those protests in 2019 were against the, the elimination of a government subsidy uh, for fuels. After the mobilizations, there were conversations, the, the, the national strike then stopped. Uh, Lenin Moreno said they wouldn't take out those subsidies, uh, but they did anyways. And uh, now, with uh, without that subsidy, the prices in Ecuador are going higher and higher because most of the food uh, chain and the production chain in Ecuador goes through uh, trucks. And, uh, and so, in, in that measure, if the fuel prices go up, everything goes up. And uh, the cost of living in Ecuador is uh, it's higher than ever. And uh, so people are protesting basically against uh, those policies uh, of the right-wing government uh, that have uh, created a, a difficult situation for the Ecuadorian people. And, you know, Martin, who are the people who organize the protests? Because, you know, clearly this is, as you say, protests against neoliberal policies. But who are the people who are impacted most by these policies and who organize the protests, who are involved in them and what are their demands? Yes. So um, the national strike is an uh, indefinite national strike. That was called by the CONAIE, which is the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador. Uh, this is basically the most important uh, social movement and political movement, well, uh, social movement of Ecuador. It's uh, the, the organization that assembles uh, most of the Ecuadorian nationalities. And they are the ones who have called the, these mobilizations. They are supported by many people. And it's the Conaye the, the is a very broad uh, movement. It's an indigenous movement. So uh, it, it congregates indigenous people from different uh, uh, kind of ideologies, but mainly uh, fighting for... Um, peasants' rights, uh, campesinos, and uh, basically the indigenous people of Ecuador. Um, however, there are many others that are joining the protest, uh, students, truck drivers, and other, other sectors of the working class in Ecuador. Uh, their demands, they have a list of 10 demands of the CONAIE, mainly, basically, uh, a stop of the fuel prices hike, which uh, it will also, as I said before, uh, um, have an impact on the general prices of uh, basic goods in Ecuador. Secondly, uh, 
I would say uh, there is a, a, a demand of uh, increasing the budget on health, education, and other uh, basic human rights uh, and, and for the implementation of basic human rights and policies in Ecuador. They also demand a stop of uh, privatization of uh, social companies owned by the state companies. Uh, they demand an end of the uh, privileges and the policies made for the banking system and uh, and the big business in Ecuador. And on top of that, they are demanding a stop of uh, criminal and uh, um, a response to the criminal situation in Ecuador and a, and a stop of the of the um, repression against uh, social protests and social leaders in Ecuador. Yeah, and there's also been some pretty serious repression uh, taken out against the protesters over this period, Martin. I mean, I was looking at a piece uh, in People's Dispatch that reported um, from the uh, Alliance for Human Rights Organizations, which is an NGO in Ecuador, that uh, noted that between June 13th and June 19th, state security forces committed 39 types of uh, human rights violations um, of people uh, against people taking part in the strike, detaining 79 injuring 55 and even killing um, an 18-year-old indigenous boy. And so, I mean, how do you think this sort of reflects really on um, the presidency of Guillermo Lasso in general? I mean, do you think that um, sort of his general position inside the country, it's my understanding that um, he doesn't have a ton of support within the governing bodies of Ecuador and things like that. I mean, what do you think it means for the Lasso government to not only be facing this intensity of protest, but the fact that uh, his administration saw it as necessary to, you know, brutalize the people in this way? Uh, Yes. The only response, the only real response from the government to these protests and to the crisis that have been happening in Ecuador is uh, police and military, uh, a police and military response. The I would say that the government is very weak in a sense, in a sense that it has, if I'm correct, I, I was trying to look for the numbers, but I think I'm correct, uh, about an 82% of disapproval uh, in the last polls. So the, uh, there is not a popular uh, support of the government, a real popular support of the government. However, the government is supported by the big economic groups of Ecuador. Now there are some changes in the media landscape uh, who are supporting them and who are not, uh, which uh, media outlets are not supporting them. It's changing a little bit, but they still have a, a, a big grasp uh, um, uh, of the of the media landscape in Ecuador. And uh, as I said, the only response to it is uh, the military and the police. Following the the recipes of the IMF and the World Bank, the government of Moreno first, and now the government of Lasso have uh, reduced the budgets in almost every sector of the government and uh, of the state, uh, reducing health, reducing uh, education and all of the main uh, tasks of the government, but not haven't reduced, they have augmented the the, the budget of the police and the military in Ecuador. So that gives them a grasp of the the power in Ecuador, the, 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 the hegemonic powers in Ecuador, and also give them the only solution that they have and the only thing that's still uh, well-funded and well-organized 
for the state and the government is the police and is the the military. So the the only response that they can give is uh, a repression. They they don't have other means of responding. Uh, President Nasso said yesterday. Uh, no, it has been said this week that uh, he's calling for for a dialogue. That he's calling all sectors for dialogue. However, uh, the Conaye and, and uh, Leonidas Sisa, the president of the Conaye, the Conaye uh, very rightly says that uh, they can't trust, trust those uh, dialogues from the government as they have been already dialoguing with the government for over a year. And there is no real response to, to the demands of the Conaye and the Ecuadorian people. And uh, so until they don't see an actual document signed by the government, uh, approving and changing the policies that the people of Ecuador are protesting, uh, they won't go to a to a dialogue. In the sense, not that they don't want a dialogue, but that they need real reassurances that the government will make a change. And so, how does this impact uh, the government of Lasso? Well, I think at the end of the day, the government of Lasso, for what they think, they are doing a great job. Because it's a government for bankers and a government for the big businesses of Ecuador. So in their minds, they feel like they are not running a country, but they are running a business and they are doing well because their businesses, for example, Banco de Guayaquil, uh, which is the bank that Guillermo Lasso uh, used to be the president, used to own, um, made uh, double their earnings or their, their, uh, their, yeah, their earnings. Uh, during the, the the first year of Lasso's government, so they are ruling for the for the high classes of Ecuador and not regarding the the needs of the people of Ecuador. It's a typical right wing uh, neoliberal government, I would say, and the popular response to it uh, is showing up, and it's showing up in Latin America in different sec- uh, countries of Latin America as well. Yeah, and I do wonder how you see these protests in the context of the uh, rising uh, tide of progressivism in Latin America. What does what do these protests mean for uh, the Lasso government in uh, the spread of uh, left leaning governments uh, in the region? Uh, I would say we're seeing. Uh, 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 an end of neoliberalism in in Ecuador and in Latin America, or a cycle of an end of neoliberalism. It's very similar to what happened in the late 90s, uh, 1990, uh, 1990, and the early 2000s, uh, where progressive governments had already risen uh, from these kind of protests that had happened in Ecuador. In Ecuador and in Latin America, you see uh, governments as Kirchner, as Lula, uh, as the ones of uh, other countries in Latin America who rose exactly from this kind of of protests and this kind of uh, historical moments. People are protesting uh, in Ecuador and in Latin America exactly against these neoliberal policies and these policies that are worldwide and you see them not only in Latin America, in Latin America there is a a surge and a hike of progressive governments, I would say not only rising but coming back to power, coming back to governments because people are fed up with uh, these policies that only benefits business 
And this supposed trickle-down economics that you see and we can see that don't uh, make the country uh, bigger, um, uh, more redistribution and, and better things for the people, for the working class people and the poor people of our countries. Uh, you saw it in, in Peru, for example, which is one of the countries with uh, the, the longest neoliberalism. They tried to, to put a, a different precedent, well, that didn't uh, work out, but people are uh, saying enough to these neoliberal policies. You can see it in this weekend in Colombia, the country which is one of the, the preferred countries uh, for the US and the, and the IMF and the neoliberalists, uh, changing the, the way of things because people are saying enough, we can't keep living with this poverty and with this inequality. So you had the, the national strike in Colombia in 2021, last year, and now you have the, 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 the hope of the people in a new kind of government, in a change in the government. I, I can see a, a, a rising of left-leaning, left-wing government, progressive governments, which we call uh, Nacional Populares, National Popular, Popular Governments in Latin America, and, uh, and the, the neoliberal uh, states and the neoliberal times in our countries in Latin America growing shorter, shorter and shorter because people uh, have seen how they can live under uh, progressive governments and governments that try to redistribute the, the, the wealth of, of, of a country. And they are seeing what it means to live now uh, under neoliberalism, and they are trying to make a change and voting for, for progressive governments. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Martin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about corporate media distortions of Nicaragua. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Perry, a writer for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. John. Thanks so much for joining us. Very pleased to, to join with you and talk about this uh, important little subject. Absolutely, John. And uh, we've been seeing uh, quite a bit lately in uh, uh, the corporate-owned media different claims about the uh, Sandinista government in Nicaragua uh, supposedly cracking down on civil society. Uh, I believe in one case, the New York Times claimed that Nicaragua is, quote, uh, inching towards dictatorship. And uh, a lot of this uh, most recent analysis seems to be based around the issue of NGOs and how 
how the Nicaraguan government uh, handles NGOs. And it's being presented um, in the U.S. and uh, the West as yet another example of this, you know, supposedly authoritarian or, or dictatorial um, Sandinista government, of course, under uh, uh, Daniel Ortega. And you published a piece about this for FAIR, uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, entitled uh, Nicaragua, a Dictatorship When It Follows U.S. Leads on NGOs. And so, John, I was hoping you could explain sort of what the reality is of uh, NGO governance in uh, Nicaragua and, you know, uh, honestly, why these uh, corporate media platforms uh, recently seem to have been uh, seizing upon the issue. Well, we have to go back to the, the violent attempt to um, uh, overthrow the uh, Sandinista government that took place in, in 2018, in April to July 2018, um, because that violence was sparked by a lot of people who'd been working with NGOs um, that were getting money from the US, from US government agencies like the National Endowment for Democracy and USAID. And they were training young people to criticize and uh, take action against the Sandinista government. And uh, in fact, these NGOs were um, helping to establish the groups that would have, uh, have weapons at uh, the barricades, at the roadblocks that were set up in April 2018. And so this group of NGOs, there were pro probably about six or eight of them, had a very hot, violent history and were receiving U.S. government money in order to to effectively achieve regime change in, in Nicaragua. And up till that time, the, the Nicaraguan government had been very tolerant towards NGOs. Um, they had to register, they had to provide accounts and so on, but the system didn't uh, rigorously check the status of NGOs, non-profit organizations. And so after, the, after 2018, after things had calmed down, after the government had resolved the violence and so on, it began to look again at the, the laws that apply to non-profit organizations. And it, in doing so, it looked carefully at the law that applies in the US, um, the Foreign uh, Agents Registration Act called FARA, which has applied in various forms since 1938. And in the US, as, as listeners probably know, a non-profit organization, if it receives money from abroad, has to register with the US government and has to show how it's using it, that money. And simply, uh, the Nicaraguan government is doing the same thing. Um, it closed down some of those NGOs that had been in, engaged in the violence in 2018, and it's scrutinizing very carefully all of the other NGOs, and there are about 7,000 of them uh, in the country, and getting them to register and uh, especially if they get, receive funds from abroad. And so far, uh, at the time I wrote the article, about 400 NGOs had closed down. The figure's now around 600, although many of these NGOs haven't done any work for several years. So it's, it's partly a, a kind of cleaning out operation of uh, non-profit organizations that have effectively ceased to operate. And of course, you know, the corporate media has never asked the question, as they're accusing uh, Nicaragua of, you know, uh, committing the sweeping purge that really was the withdrawal of the tax-free legal status of a very small portion of these uh, NGOs. The media has never asked what these nonprofits 
did that led the Nicaraguan government to even do that. So what, why did the Nicaraguan government uh, uh, take away the tax-free legal status of what seemed to be uh, innocent uh, non-governmental organizations? Well, exactly. This is the problem with the, with the, uh, the media treatment of, of Nicaragua generally. Um, you know, the, it's completely unbalanced so that uh, they, they, they pick up stories from the right-wing press in Nicaragua or they pick up um, the, the storyline being fed by the U.S. government and they don't criticise it. They don't look behind the storyline to see what the real truth is. And if they had looked at um, the evidence on, on non-profit organisations, they would have found out that many of them were engaged in, in a violent uh, government overthrow attempt in 2018. And, um, you know, if, if uh, as we've seen with what's, what's been happening in, in the U.S. Uh, Congress uh, in the last week or two, if anything um, remotely like this had happened in the United States, the authorities would have clamped down very quickly on the organizations involved. Um, in Nicaragua, yes, they are clamping down. But, you know, the, the violence in 2018 was far exceeded what happened on January the 6th, 2021 in, in Washington. Yeah. And you've made a couple of points here, John, that I think bear repeating. I mean, uh, number one, the fact that NGO governance in Nicaragua is, you know, uh, eminently conventional. And as I think you note, um, not even as uh, strict as we see in other countries, including the United States, and is actually completely in line with global standards on the issue. But secondly, there's um, this 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 problem that uh, goes unspoken about within uh, uh, these corporate media platforms about how some of these NGOs um, are, in fact, you know, vessels for the regime change policy of the United States and the West. So I was hoping you could uh, expound on that aspect of things as about, you know, aside from, you know, the administrative issues with some NGOs that we've kind of touched on is that some of these NGOs also have a very clear uh, uh, political aim that is, uh, uh, frankly, uh, to sort of violate uh, the democracy and sovereignty of uh, Nicaragua. Exactly. And this is the problem, because um, if, 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 if we mention, if we talk about non-profit organizations, most people will think that they're engaged in, in health work, in education, in, in helping lower, lower income groups. But there were a group of uh, NGOs here which were simply focused on, on getting rid of the Sandinista government. And uh, these are the ones that received millions of dollars from the National Endowment for Democracy, from USAID, uh, from the National Republica, Republican Institute and various other uh, U.S. organizations. The, the leaders of these NGOs were having meetings at the U.S. Embassy. You know, they were fully engaged in, in the process of trying to unseat uh, the Sandinista government. Well, you know, in, in any country in the world, this isn't appropriate activity for a, a non-profit charitable organization. So it was hardly surprising that belatedly the uh, Daniel Ortega's government decided to take action against them. And then I think the other question is, uh, is it unique or, or, you know, unusual that a government, uh, any government, uh, but the uh, Ortega government in particular, would 
do what they have done. Go, you know, move to close or or uh, uh, revoke the tax-free status of non-governmental organizations. Is this something that is unique to this allegedly corrupt government in Nicaragua, or is this yet another example of uh, Western media picking and choosing? Well, curiously, there's an international movement um, sponsored by the G7 group of, uh, of uh, developed uh, countries to tackle uh, money laundering and um, uh, uh, financial misuse of non-profit organizations. There's, a, there's an organization called the Financial Action Task Force that was set up in 1989 by the G7 governments. And this is trying to impose rules across the, every country in the world to uh, put in place better regulation of NGOs and other and banks and other institutions handling finance. But it's specifically in relation to NGOs. The Financial Action Tax Force actually asked the Nicaraguan government to impose the sort of rules that he has now imposed. And when he did that, the FATF specifically endorsed those controls and praised the government for having largely complied with with its um, its requirements. So none of this came out in the media stories uh, about um, non-profits. Uh, and yet the, the Nicaraguan government was in many respects simply following uh, international rules in what it did. And in fact, the Australian government did this a, a few years earlier. And when they did so, they closed thousands of NGOs in Australia. And there was some concern about that in the Australian press. Uh, but it was a very similar process to, to what has happened here. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking, John, that when it comes to how uh, uh, Nicaragua is uh, often portrayed in a Western corporate media, I almost feel like we could switch out Nicaragua for Cuba or Venezuela or China or the DPRK or Iran or or Syria, not even just on the issues of NGOs, but just the way that um, these platforms very purposefully sort of uh, decontextualize and and mislead and in some cases outright lie, um, all out of an attempt to advance uh, the interest of of uh, the U.S. government in terms of the whole uh, geopolitical situation. And I think it's sort of a reminder of, you know, uh, the profoundly political nature of what is considered journalism uh, uh, in the West, which, you know, as we say on the show, often ends up just being sort of, you know, stenography for uh, the State Department or uh, of the White House. And so for a country, speaking of the United States, that likes to brag uh, about its free press, well, we see how uh, some of its platforms operate Operate when when it comes to this, and not even to mention uh, the, the the suppression and deplatforming of uh, outlets that um, you know uh, basically buck uh, the Washington consensus and try to give uh, this fuller context. And so I just feel like this is kind of a, a statement on the reality of how you know a journalism in the U.S. and the West presents itself as a kind of a, a unbiased, a balanced, a simple a report of the facts as opposed to, frankly, another wing of the state. Yes, and, and frankly, um, as you say, what's needed here isn't a slavish uh, adoration of the Sandinista government. Of course, right. every government has got faults and every government can be criticised. Um, what's needed is simply fair reporting uh, of what is happening somewhere rather than 
the international media simply taking the US line and jumping into language like a dictatorial regime, authoritarian, uh, and so on, which is what happens every time that reporting takes place in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Guardian in the UK or the BBC or NPR about Nicaragua. And it, it's it's completely unfair and it, it gives a completely distorted picture to people who might uh, have some interest in Nicaragua but don't know very much about it and will, of course, form the opinion that, that it's a her- an horrendous dictatorship that's persecuting his people. I live in Nicaragua and I know that the vast majority of Nicaraguans live in, are living very peaceful, um, happy lives and are content with the government. But that is not the picture you get from the international media. Not at all. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends, we are here. It is Wednesday, June 22nd. And in 20 minutes, you will be able to give us a call and let us know what's on your mind. Anything at all you want to talk about, anything in the world. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C., because there are many ways for you, all of our comrades, accomplices and allies, all of y'all to reach out and touch us at the show. You can do that, of course, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. But you can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And we are particularly glad to hear from Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, today joining us. Ajamu, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure, Jackie. Good to be here. Good to have you on, Ajamu, because, of course, there's a lot going on in all different places all around the world. And I think I want to start with these January 6th hearings. I want to start right here. Because, you know, as I've been watching the hearings, I don't know if you've been if you've been keeping up with them. And yesterday was particularly interesting with the two black women election workers testifying about the uh, racist, uh, violent terrorism they uh, endured 
when Trump and his campaign named them as uh, the people who literally stole the election from Trump in Georgia. You know, I, I aside from these kinds of moments where that kind of information, like the level of depravity that maybe we didn't know before uh, that Trump supporters and his uh, co-conspirators in the Trump organization and in the campaign were willing to go to to steal an election. Aside from that, I get the feeling that this whole January 6th uh, televised hearing and, and even the investigation is really just almost like political cover for the Democratic Party for, number one, not going after Trump for any of this immediately after January 6th, because if anybody should have been charged with seditious conspiracy, it should have been him and it should have been first. Uh, But now here we are more than a year later, and uh, a few of the instigators in the Capitol riot have finally been indicted for seditious conspiracy. But as I'm watching these hearings, Ajamu, I am questioning whether any of the people in Trump's campaign, uh, his supporters, if any of them are going to be held accountable for the crimes that, yes, I think this committee has shown that they've committed. But the question is, of course, whether the Department of Justice is going to do anything about any of this information and use it to charge any of those folks other than the few members of the Proud Boys and the uh, Oath Keepers for a seditious conspiracy. So I so I just feel like this is like these hearings are just like a long campaign uh, ad for the Democratic Party. And, and they're they're, you know, peppered with slogans of, you know, we love the police and and freedom and and democracy and and, you know, with a flag and an eagle waving in the background. And I, I just feel like it's it's good to see. I think it's instructive on on some level. But as far as changing anything in regard to the way the system exists and operates, and particularly in regard to the Democratic Party, Ajamu, I think it's all just smoke and mirrors. But I'm wondering your thoughts. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. I, I mean, there, there's a lot there in your your question and, and commentary. First, on the um, the naming of those poll workers and others um, across the country by the Trump campaign. Uh, you know, one of the angles that they wanted to pursue in um, developing the narrative of the election being stolen uh, was that the main uh, protagonists of that were black folks. This was the kind of underhanded dealings that the Democrat Party engages in, uh, working with and using uh, black people in those in those places where black people the vote of uh, black folks would make a difference. So, you know that was that was consistent consistent with the kind of politics, racial politics that uh, that element has been using. We we know that there's no level of opportunism that. Uh, that Trump and his forces would would not stoop to to advance their own particular interests. Uh, so I wouldn't. That wasn't wasn't for me. Wasn't that surprising? But I think you know your characterization of uh, or your questioning of what uh, what are the real um, objectives of this uh, committee um, investigation? I think is is uh, an important uh, question because. It does feel like and seem like uh, political theater, uh, 
um, probably not for the same reasons you alluded to in terms of, um, you know, the the commitment on the part of of the committee uh, to try to create uh, the foundation for some kind of criminal charge working with the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, I think from the very beginning, this is where I think the real cynical politics come in and really begins to point us toward the real objectives. And that is, I think that they knew from the very beginning that that it's going to be very difficult and not impossible to prove a case of of criminal, uh, uh, a, a case that could stick with, with criminal charges. The value, I think, of the of this investigation for the Democrats is this long, drawn-out political theater that allows for the Democrats to divert attention away from their own uh, failures uh, to uh, uh, continue to delegitimize not only Donald Trump, but by extension, the 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump. Um, and the intent basically is to uh, to do that because they know that they have nothing else to offer, not only in 2022, but also in 2024. Now, for me, there's, it is quite clear that there's an element in the Democratic Party that would like to see some kind of criminal indictment because they don't want, they, they want to create the, the political environment so that uh, Donald Trump wouldn't have, uh, run. And if, and if they could, some people would like to see, in fact, some kind of um, uh, criminal uh, charge that will make him ineligible to run in 2024. So there, there is that element there, too. But I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, Jackie, I just, you know, for me, um, and I have to defer to, you know, people like yourself who are really following this very closely, you know, I just don't, you know, beyond the kind of uh, uh, traditional uh, Democrat Party manipulation of the public, uh, speaking primarily to their base, because they're not really making any kind of inroads with independence. You know, to me, again, the, the main objective of these hearings is, in fact, uh, a long, drawn-out uh, get-out-the-vote and attention and diversion uh, tool that they've been using uh, over the last almost a year. So I, I don't put much much um, I don't put much faith in this thing being any more than that. Yeah, and you know, as I watch the hearings, and I and I have been watching the hearings because, I, like I've said several times, I, I did not have my expectations for them being of any use whatsoever was very very low. But then after I watched the first hearing, and they did, you know, show some that additional footage of the the violence that was committed uh, all over the place by the you know. Folks, um, it it was a, a little bit revealing uh, and instructive to, to that end. I do I did note Ajamu that at the very beginning, at the very first hearing, actually before the 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 hearing started, Benny Thompson noted that there would be no inclusion of law enforcement actions in the proceedings of the hearings, and I think. That has always definitely colored my uh, perspective on these hearings and and leads me to the conclusion that, you know, it's all just at least for the Democrats, uh, you know, one long campaign ad. But certainly it is a 
I won't even say capitulation because it's not as if the Democrats weren't in league with law enforcement all the time. But I, I do feel like it is a a a a, a cap nod to uh, growing fascism and and the entrenchment of the police state, because there is such a large uh, black hole, if you will, about what law enforcement knew, the fact that they knew that there was a credible threat of violence. There were literal plans that were on social media. They had the paper trail. And then, you know, there is information that is not going to be investigated about what law enforcement did not do, particularly in regard to, you know, possible infiltration of the FBI. So so it, it definitely seems that an aspect of these hearings, Ajamo, is also to give cover to law enforcement as the Democrats kind of pivot to uh, being giving full throated support to an expanding police and surveillance state. That's a very interesting um, analysis. Um, you know, it, it, it's. Yeah, it, that, 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 that's something to think about, because I, it it's quite clear that um, there was not going to be uh, any in, indictments. But, you know, your analysis also kind of speaks to the point that I was making in terms of this being uh, a tool to, to divert um, and to uh, begin to surface alternative or complementary agendas, if you will, of the Democratic Party. And one of them is, in fact, to... Uh, enhance the perception, the public perception of law enforcement. You know, all of the uh, 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 testimony from the courageous um, uh, uh, cops at the at the Capitol and the sufferings of their families and all of that. You know, all of these things were all of these uh, uh, images and all of those stories were part of the process of attempting to try to shore up, if you will, the uh, faltering legitimacy uh, of the state and of the the agencies, in in particular the um, uh, police agencies of the state. I mean, you know, we have to remember we only, you know, that that long away from the rebellions, the the so-called George Floyd rebellions. So, you know, we had those kinds of of, uh, testimonies and, and that kind of shoring up of the police while simultaneously the Democrats are talking about uh, we're not for this uh, defund the police. In fact, we are for the enhancement of the uh, police authority. So, you know, the, the conservatism of the of, of the Democrats are reflected in their their policies and programs are reflected in their strategies. And I think that's something to actually think about. Uh, I, you know, this... this you know, and, and I know there's a lot of, of, of your um, uh, listeners that uh, are, you know, are concerned about and would like to see um, uh, more accountability uh, for what they perceive went down on January 5th and January 6th at the Capitol. You know, but at the same time, you know, I, I know uh, this show and, and your listeners you know, because of what you just laid out, the kind of analysis, you know, it suggests we also have to be very, very careful with these these narratives that get developed that can have the inadvertent uh, consequence for even radical forces 
of putting too much stock and legitimacy into the possibility of accountability uh, coming from this state. Um, and so we got to be really, really careful about that as we engage in this ideological struggle as a part of our resistance movement, that we, we don't inadvertently uh, prop up the legitimacy of this state. I think the, the best angle is the angle that you alluded to in terms of trying to really decipher, uh, deconstruct what may be some of the other underlying strategic objectives of these, these criminals. And that way we can uh, not allow ourselves to get uh, uh, confused or to inadvertently um, uh, prop up the very same forces that we know we have to be um, um, uh, in resistance to, if, if what I'm saying makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And I think that presents another one of these really, I, I don't know if confusing is the word, but confounding, I think, is definitely uh, uh, along the lines of of how I'm feeling, it's like you know there are uh, reports of of some of the uh, January sixth uh, uh, instigators, uh, rioters, insurrectionists who you know have been taken into custody and they've had their civil liberties violated. And and okay, we never want that. At the same time, Ajamu, these are folks who were completely fine going going along with that narrative that these two particular black women in Georgia stole the election from Trump, making, you know, going along with that very racialized uh, narrative and uh, uh, fully giving themselves over to a fascist takeover of an already not that democratic government in the first place, but still using violence to carry out their means uh, to to they claim to defend the Constitution that they were actually violated. It, it's like, you know, it's while while we we want to be consistent in calling out the abuses in this system against whomever uh, is subjected to the abuses. It's also really interesting that we we have to be careful to not find ourselves in league with the very people who were completely fine with terrorizing two black women because Trump told them they stole ballots in Georgia. I, it's, it's a weird situation that we're in. And, and the tightrope is, it's very uncomfortable to walk. Yeah, no, you, you, you're right. And, but if you, if, you, if, you, let's, if you, for a moment, uh, separate out the, um, the, the incendiary uh, separate out the 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 the, the black women uh, uh, issue, and and remind ourselves of the kind of narrative that uh, the Trump forces were had constructed that uh, there was a legitimate basis for them to challenge the election. Uh, they were not getting their due um, attention from the courts. Um, and that this was part of a conspiracy on the part of the Democrats uh, to uh, try to maintain uh, uh, power and to deny Trump a second term. Uh, that was a powerful narrative that, that really resonated with a number of his supporters and was really the, the it seemed to be the motivation for folks to gather there in in Washington to uh, uh, challenge the the counting of the of the delegates. Uh, and 
in a way very similar to what we saw happen, for example, in 2000, uh, when uh, Gore, uh, when there was the, the the coup in 2000 on the part of the Republicans, the, the, the constitutional coup, if you will, uh, that went through and was used, that was um, headed up by the Supreme Court. Now, there was a rebellion, if you will, within the Democratic Party that you know, wanted to challenge the, the votes of the delegates and or the legitimacy of the delegates, primarily from Florida. But that was that was squashed because you know uh, Al Gore um, uh, believed that it was more important to uh, to maintain the legitimacy of the system than to uh, to challenge the, uh, the 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 judgment of the Supreme Court. Now, this situation was, you know, different in many ways, and in particular, one way was the massive uh, mobilization that took place. Uh, but the spirit of what they were attempting to do was very similar. Uh, the Trump for- forces had uh, found some um, uh, <laughs> what they believed to be constitutional provisions uh, that can challenge the legitimacy of the of the delegates uh, in certain states where. They claim it had not really been resolved uh, whether or not there was, in fact, voter fraud. And that was the basis of the argument that uh, Trump made to uh, Mike Pence not to recognize uh, the legitimacy of the delegates in certain states that would then, you know, um, uh, throw it back into the courts or into Congress. And what they seemed to be uh, angling for was going to be a constitutional crisis. But, you know, I, I I don't kind of go along with this notion that this was an attempted coup. Um, I think at best, uh, my characterization of what happened and those individuals involved, that they, they engage in, I guess you could call it a riot. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, again, you know, we, we have to be careful because when we start, start talking about what law enforcement knew and uh, and whether or not you know they should have been more uh, involved and known more, I mean you know that can, that that kind of stuff can come back on us also. And what they engaged in, even on January sixth, you know, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was a riot, I guess you can call it. Uh, but uh, you know, a coup, you know, is a little bit too much for me. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I think I want to get into that a little bit more on the other side of the first break of the hour. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And we have a caller on the line, Comrade from D.C. Comrade, thanks for calling. Tell us what's on your mind. Hey, this is Conway from Washington, D.C. I just wanted to ask Mr. Baraka a question. Uh, I was wondering... Um, 
Um, I don't really agree with the wording of January 6th as an attempted coup. I think it was more of a, like a like a raid, like a pirate's raid almost. Because um, I'm still trying to figure out what happened in 1492. Nobody talks about that. And um, that seems pretty similar to what happened with Ukraine, where everybody's obsessed with it, or at least white people seem obsessed with it because of hashtag blonde hair, blue eyes. So I was just wondering what Mr. Baraka thought of the connection with, between white supremacy and January 6th and the narrative around January 6th. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Yeah, Ajamu, the language around January 6th is interesting. Always been problematic. And in addition to what you were saying on the other side of the break about calling it a coup because it wasn't. So, you know, what are, you th- what are your thoughts about our callers' questions? Well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the question. And, and I think those kinds of connections have to be made. I mean, when we talk about January 6th being a coup, it, it's it, the only, only, I think, places where that really resonates are in those parts of the world where you don't have the kind of coups that we have in the global south. Uh, at best, what would have happened in um, January 6th was that the, uh, the, the rioters, let's call them that for a second, would have, been, would have taken over the Capitol. Taking over the Capitol, taking over a building, does not translate into seizing government, seizing power. Okay, you know, and, and if you, if one of the things, one of the things that have been that have come out of these investigations has been that, you know, people, for example, people uh, make the argument, well, why didn't uh, Donald Trump uh, call in the National Guard earlier? Well, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, uh, Jackie, uh, uh, because you've been watching this very closely. The information that seems have been to have surfaced is that. Uh, the Joint Joint Chiefs of Staff had intervened to the extent that they had uh, put in place uh, a a protocol that, uh, in essence, uh, divided the executive, Donald Trump, uh, from his power to, in fact, uh, call out the military that day, precisely because there were some elements in the state they were concerned about his uh, the, the, the erratic uh, uh, policies he were in fact he was in fact pursuing in right. challenge to to the election. So you know that came out that basically you know uh, he was not uh, uh, in essence even allowed to call in the national guard. So when people talk about a coup on that day. I'm looking more at the protectors of the state who, uh, some might argue, illegitimately uh, reduced the power of a semi president. So this thing is, is complicating and, and layered in ways that you know, are really not going to completely come out until probably the Republicans, when they, <laughs> when they come back into power uh, after November, and when they launch their own investigation, uh, when they begin to, when they do an investigation to look at what happened leading up to the election of Donald Trump mm. and the moves that were made by the state to limit his ability to govern, 
then we start seeing a very, very, in my opinion, a very, very interesting uh, picture of how this state actually really works. Uh, so, you know, I, I, so January 6th, uh, riot, uh, whatever, uh, insurrection, okay, fine. Uh, they're trying to dis- to undermine the ability of the, of the delegates to be counted. Uh, protests, whatever. A coup. Um, no, I can't. I can't really. I can't really uh, deal with that. So you know the, the the concern that people have about what happened on January sixth, as though this was something that was so significant, you know, in a uh, in a state that is responsible for the kinds of, of of criminality that we see this state involved in around the world, even in places like uh, Colombia undermining or attempting to influence the election, uh, denying the democracy in Haiti, uh, overthrowing governments. You know, this little uh, uh, flare-up on, on January 6th, I mean, I, I just can't, it just, it just doesn't move me. Mm. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just odd. I don't think you're odd, but I do like uh, calling it a pirate raid. I, I do, I do think that that's that's pretty uh, entertaining uh, for what from what Comrade said. But we have another caller on the line, Thyru. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi, my name's Thyru. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm talking. I'm I'm calling to ask about some ask some advice on the current top military training facility that's planning to be built here in this city. The Atlanta the Police Department is currently planning to tear down 400 acres of forest on the south side of Atlanta, a majority black community, to build a military training facility in which they will like be doing tear gas training and bomb training, like plenty of horrible things that will release chemicals into the groundwater in the in the black community, plus tearing down 400 acres of forest. So my main question, my main thing I'm asking is what to do when for like movements like this that are extremely pertinent on moving on, but when it's clear that the electoral politics or the people in electoral positions of power are dead set on not changing. And particularly what makes me ask this question is the um, two historical precedents to this was one in Chicago a few years back. I'm sure y'all know about the No Cop Academy mo- uh, movement. A campaign that happened there when they were building, when uh, Chicago police were building a cop academy on the west on the west side of Chicago, mm-hmm. and they um, they moved to try to stop that. And in the, in the end, even though the movement was very successful, it did not get the votes in the electoral house to stop it. So the academy has now is now being built. And then also here in Atlanta a few years ago, there was a closed ACDC, the um, jail, the extra jail here in Atlanta. There was a movement to close the jail, and the movement was actually successful in getting the city council to vote to close the jail back in 2019. So they voted to close it, but still here in 2022, the jail is still running and operating at full capacity with no plans to um, actually be closed. So my question is, with Stop Cop City and with movements that are like moving against um, moving against these, these very large forces that are, are aiming to harm our communities, when it's clear that the people in power in the electoral politics is not the way to go or not the way that's going to give solutions that we need, what ways do we move or what ways do we, um, do we ensure our communities are still safe? That's a great question, Thayu. Thanks so much for calling. Hope to hear from you again soon. Ajamu, what are your thoughts? First, let me say I really uh, appreciate the question, and I really appreciate the struggle that's taking place in Atlanta. Um, 
Um, we have uh, uh, forces from the Black Alliance for Peace who are uh, deeply involved in that resistance because, uh, you know, the, the this is another example of the kind of uh, militarization of local policing uh, that we see across the country. Um, and in this case, not only are they going to, uh, you know, expand and, and develop this, this, this facility, but in the process, they are going to be cutting down, uh, you know, forests. Um, and they're doing all of this um, in the face of, of growing and intensifying uh, public opposition. So how... So what 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 do progressive forces do? Well, you continue to uh, to resist. If there, in fact, is uh, intensifying opposition, that opposition has to be organized. I think that the 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 the, the aspect of the question framed between sort of uh, uh, engaging in the electoral process and and, and putting pressure on these. Uh, bourgeois local bourgeois politicians versus uh, non-electoral uh, political organizing. Sometimes that framing is sort of a, a, a false dichotomy. But basically, if one is engaged in effective organizing uh, outside of participating in the electoral processes, then what would be reflected would be the power of your organization, the power of the coalitions that you're building, the, the, the base that you have in the people and your ability to to uh, to assert power. Now, uh, that re- that power reality can be implied can be applied in various ways, including opposing uh, uh, policies that are perceived to be harmful to the community or something that seems to be uh, a major threat that has to be opposed. Uh, And when you have the ability to project power, then if there is something like a cop city being proposed by these these jive politicians, uh, a, an effective political opposition with real grounding should be able to defeat that, because if you if if that decision has to be made in the city council, for example, then you, if you have sufficient forces in those city council districts that uh, are, are sufficient enough. Uh, then that local representative has to respond to that, uh, and and. And, and that's how you are able to project power. That's how you're able to uh, to uh, to judge your ability to pro- to project power when you can handle those kinds of of policy defeats. So sometimes, you know, uh, you know, sort of poo-pooing the engagement with the electoral process uh, is sort of a, a diversionary kind of attempt to not have your own accountability. If you can't put pressure on some of these 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 uh, local uh, 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 city council folks who are winning elections with you know four, six, eight, ten thousand votes, you know, then there's something you're not doing correctly. So you know, so the so the so the 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 uh, the position shouldn't be you know, electoral uh, engagement or or not uh, is about uh, a, a a firmer commitment to building independent uh, popular power. You to 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 resist the uh, cop city and any other policy that may be uh, proposed by the local bourgeoisie. So yes, I salute the work there. 
uh, you know, sometimes you be, can be successful, like what happened with the uh, with the uh, jail system. But if you don't have, again, the ability to follow up uh, and to put pressure on them to adhere to their own decisions that were made, then you find yourself what we see in Atlanta three years later that the city, that the jail has not been closed down yet. These are examples of not the the uh, agenda of the bourgeoisie because they have their agenda. It is uh, maybe may an example of the of the strengthening of the oppositional forces that should be the focus as opposed to uh, anything else. Yeah, definitely. And uh, one of the organizations in uh, Atlanta that we know uh, personally are working uh, to. Stop Cop City is community movement builders, uh, friends of the show, uh, Kamal Franklin uh, and uh, Kalanji Jamachanga are uh, members of community movement builders. We have them on frequently. They talk about their work in uh, uh, stopping and working against Cop City political education in the community down there in Atlanta, uh, all of the activism, including the coordination uh, that they have with environmental groups in Atlanta who are now occupying uh, trees. Folks are literally tree sitting to keep that forest from being cut down. Uh, So and I think it's noteworthy uh, when you talk about uh, the power of organization to pressure uh, uh, bourgeois politicians and and folks in power. Um, Recently, I think that community movement builders and their work in uh, uh, fighting against Cop City actually got Pepsi, Pepsi Cola to back out of at least publicly backing Cop City. Now, that was the public statement that was made. Who knows what they will do later on in the future? But I think, Ajamu, that's kind of what you mean when you talk about the kind of power that your organization should be able to wield in in the work that they're doing, that they they ought to make somebody nervous. It, that that's trying to put one over on the people. And and the, the question now is, of course, and I have no doubt that community movement builders and the folks down in Atlanta uh, aligned with them and the Black Alliance for Peace will continue to work against uh, Cop City and hopefully get more folks to back out of the deal. But I think that's what you mean when we're ta- when you talk about uh, uh, the power of your organization to to move people, Ajama. Exactly. Exactly. You you build a, a broad based coalition around, around a struggle like that. You got the, the labor unions. You got the police. You get that the police. You got the uh, uh, preachers. Uh, you have all of the forces that potentially would be opposed to the the, the, the use of that land, the diversion of resources, the further uh, militarization of our communities. You know, you 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 organize those forces. You put it in within a national and international context, um, and and that's how you win. I mean, and even if you lose specifically that particular fight, you still win. Because you are educating people, you are uh, uh, deepening your organization, uh, you are strengthening your bonds with other uh, local organizations, you know, and you're giving people an opportunity to get the experience in political opposition. Absolutely. And if uh, folks want to check out Community Movement Builders uh, further, they can at communitymovementbuilders.org. Org, but we are going to move to another break for this hour, and we will be right back on the other side of it on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And Ajamu, you mentioned uh, Colombia. Uh, a little while ago in uh, before the last break. And I didn't want to uh, get out of this conversation today without talking about the recent uh, groundbreaking election results in uh, Colombia and what it means for that country's relationship with the United States. Because I think those of us in the Imperial Corps who know little about uh, uh, countries in the global South really don't understand uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Colombia, uh, Colombia's right-wing government. Uh, and even when we talk about things like Plan Colombia, people really, I, I don't think they really get an understanding of how important Colombia is to uh, U.S. imperialism's uh, operations in the global south. So, so can you contextualize uh, uh, the recent elections in Colombia with the possible change in 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 the relationship between the U.S. and Colombia, and and how difficult it will be to change that relationship uh, for the incoming government. No, thank thanks for that. I think that the, the first we do is just sort of remind uh, uh, everyone um, and, and provide this context, and that is the the particular role or the particular relationship between the U.S. and Colombia, uh, and as as all of your listeners already know, we. Colombia is the client state of the U.S. Uh, the the U.S. bourgeoisie works directly with the uh, bourgeois elite in Colombia. Uh, they share common interests, which is basically to exploit uh, the people and resources of of Colombia. Uh, and in, in part of of that common uh, agenda has meant that uh, when there's been resistance, including even armed struggle, uh, the U.S. has been right there to uh, provide support. Uh, to the Colombian government to deal with their internal contradictions in terms of the people engaged in rebellion, including uh, armed struggle. Um, beyond uh, the internal struggles in Colombia, uh, Colombians have been involved in in um, uh, assisting the U.S. Uh, agenda throughout the region. Uh, it is one of the is is one of the states or the main state in the region at this point uh, pushing the U.S. agenda supporting the uh, attempts on the part of the U.S. to divide the progressive uh, states in the region from uh, other states um, and, uh, you know, to to put pressure on specific states like Venezuela from the right. So this has been the traditional role of Colombia, and that's why, you know, uh, Colombia is referred to as the Israel of, of Latin America, and some some Colombians are in fact proud of that. We all know the role of Israel, so we have to talk about that. So, with this uh, election, uh, Gustavo uh, Petro and Francia Marquez, um, that traditional relationship is going to be altered. Now, it, it's going to be a difficult uh, struggle because um, uh, even though uh, Petro and Francia are going to be coming into into uh, power August the seventh, you know they they don't have a legislative majority. Uh, so, which means that in the Congress, the right wing still has a a majority and they still have a clear uh, agenda. 
of the national security state, uh, the police, the, the military, while uh, they might be able to make some changes at the top of that structure, uh, that structure is still, uh, is, is top ranks and middle ranks are still uh, uh, clearly connected to the, the right-wing elements that run things in Colombia. Uh, and with the Biden administration doing a wink and a nod uh, right before the election uh, in May, uh, elevating Colombia uh, who was a, uh, a NATO global partner uh, from that position to a quote unquote major non-NATO uh, ally that was we many of us believe uh, a signal to the right wing that you know if if they needed to uh, abandon the, the constitutional process, uh, in Colombia, they should not worry too much about real opposition uh, coming from the U.S. Uh, and Francis Marquez, I think, correctly identified that as uh, uh, attempted interference in the internal politics of Colombia. Because as soon as that announcement was made that they're going to be this major uh, non-NATO ally, uh, for the first time in even right-wing Colombian history, the head of the uh, of the army uh, made a comment uh, expressing his opposition to Gustavo Petro and Francis Marquez. Uh, so that was a very dangerous move there. So it's going to be uh, an alteration. We know that the campaign has raised questions about uh, the uh, the U.S bases in Colombia. Uh, we know that they have uh, uh, said that they're going to look at and, and, and renegotiate the free trade agreement between Colombia and, and the U.S. Uh, we know that they are going to try to attempt to actually implement the peace agreement uh, that was agreed to five years ago, but undermined by President Duque and the right wing. So there's going to be some uh, changes in that relationship. What all this means in terms of the region is that with the Lula uh, coming into power also in a few months, that this so-called pink tide is really, uh, has really re rebounded uh, from the uh, repression from the U.S. Uh, into something that uh, uh, is, is going to be a little bit deeper color than pink going forward. But, you know, Colombia is not, is not won yet. Uh, it is significant. We celebrate the, the victory, uh, but there's still a lot of work to do because these folks are dangerous, and it's quite clear uh, that U.S. imperialism has decided that it's going to use whatever it means at its, its disposal uh, with a military first uh, strategy uh, to maintain their, their hegemony in this region. Yeah, I think it was noteworthy that uh, Biden, uh, good old Uncle Joe, a liberal, vote for him to get rid of Trump because he's so much better because we need to save the black folks from Trumpism. Biden invited uh, right wing former president Ivan Duque to the White House in March and told him then that Colombia is the linchpin, in my view, to the whole hemisphere, north and south. So, um, yeah, it was clear then, and I think it's still clear now, that Biden is 
very much uh, uh, invested in a continued right wing, a strong right wing in Colombia. And I don't doubt for one second that uh, he will make it as difficult as he can for uh, the incoming government to do any of the things that they want to do. Because, you know, as you noted, Ajamu, the right wing still has a majority in in the government uh, as far as seats in the government. And, you know, the Colombia has been getting 13 billion dollars in aid from the U.S. So we're not just talking about ideological support. We're talking about money and military equipment and all that kind of stuff, too. But but that that raises the question for me, Ajamu, of the Biden administration in particular and their his and their clear embracing of rising fascism around the world with supporting, you know, right wing fascist Ivan Duque. Uh, recently visiting uh, the brutal fascist dictatorship in Saudi Arabia, visiting uh, and always openly supporting uh, uh, the fascist uh, occupation uh, of Palestine uh, in Israel. I mean, this is just just blue fascism with this guy, Biden. And, And why is it so difficult to get people to understand that in this regard, Biden is no different from Trump, who is no different from Obama, who is no different from Bush. Look, I mean, it, right, exactly. I mean, it is, and, and even the, the, the U.S. has always supported right-wing governments, uh, military governments uh, across the planet, fascist governments, colonial governments across the planet. Why? Because the U.S. has always, always been a right-wing uh, fascist state. Now, it was able to dress certain things up uh, at, at the end of the Second World War uh, to bring in some social democratic policies um, and the, the expansion and continuation of, of, of Keynesian politics that allow for the, for the so-called welfare state uh, to corrupt and undermine the working class. Um, but it's always had that nature where basically uh, violence was always there. Uh, it, it was uh, deployed uh, to maintain uh, uh, European dominance in the colonial world. It was used to expand U.S. Uh, power and dominance throughout the global South. Uh, so, you know, the, the fascist character of the U.S. has been consistent. The issue you know, or the confusion for people in the U.S. is that they don't seem to understand that when you have a settler colonial state like the U.S., that's also an empire, that you can have forms of so-called democracy, procedural democracy uh, for the at the center, while simultaneously within the same system have colonial fascism in, in the periphery. And that's exactly what we've had. Now, the issue, will, for example, what's happening right now in, in Europe is that the kind of fascistic uh, uh, relations and behaviors, uh, violence that uh, has been the norm in the global south, uh, we see that now that has uh, uh, rebounded back to, to Europe. And that's why, you know, they've been framing uh, Putin as some kind of, 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 of fascist and, 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 and Hitler and all this kind of, you know, nonsense, you know. Uh, but, you know, this issue of, of the character of the U.S., uh, the character of the U.S. state, we've got to be absolutely clear about that. That basically this right wing uh, 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 bourgeois uh, ruling class, this uh, capitalist dictatorship, uh, they've always been a rightist force, including 
is the current the current expression of that in the neoliberal uh, right that controls the state and controls the Democratic Party. So we can't be, have any confusion about that. We can't allow this sort of dichotomy between the neoliberal fascists and these still relatively disorganizing, incoherent Trumpian elements uh, that are outside of power. We've been allowing ourselves to be diverted away from understanding that that the the, the neo-fascist forces that seem to be the most threat uh, to so-called democracy in the U.S. are not necessarily coming from the Trumpian forces, in my opinion, but more so from the neoliberal uh, right wing that controls the state and controls big tech controls the corporate media. They're the ones that have constructed the narrative, and they're the ones in, involved in censorship. You know, they're the ones that basically are, are pursuing aggressively this military-first strategy on the part of the bourgeoisie to maintain their hegemony. So we got to be clear about this, because if not, we, are, we, we will allow ourselves to be confused and we'll be propping up the program and the world perspective of the neoliberal right and thinking that we we are doing something that's, that's relatively relatively progressive. And you know, Ajamu, around the world, like in 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 the global South in particular, right now there are protests against neoliberalism and and uh, Guillermo Lasso's neoliberal policies in Ecuador. Uh, there are uh, some more protests popped off in Bolivia today uh, uh, against uh, homelessness because the. Uh, 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 or or against evictions, rather, because the eviction moratoriums that were put in place during uh, COVID, during the height of the pandemic, have now expired. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of evictions are looming in Bolivia. I mean, people in other countries, you know, we we've seen how Colombia gets down when 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 they do not like what the government does. So, I mean, people around the world on the continent, people are struggling against neocolonialism in the streets. It's not reported as much, but it is happening. People around the world, working class and poor people around the world are struggling against the neoliberal world order that is being propped up and, and forced upon people by the fascist right. But here in the United States, Ajamu, People are just complaining at the gas tank that, you know, gas is five dollars in some sense. You know, it's over five dollars. People are, are, you know, tweeting about how high the price of meat is uh, without contextualizing that it doesn't have to be because Tyson Farms, one of the three major meat processing companies in this country, um, just posted record profits in the first quarter of this year. So. They're all just price gouging us. The the capitalist dictatorship, I think, that you just spoke about. And and instead of folks in this country taking to the streets, as we have seen in, in other countries, folks are just kind of complaining as they're trying to dig deeper into their pockets to make up the, you know, to make up the gap. And I and I wonder what you think the tipping point is going to be, or if you think there's going to be a tipping point for the kind of mass people's movement, general strike, feet in the streets action that we've seen in other countries to materialize here? 
Yeah, and I know we only have about a minute or so left, but I, you, I, I think it's, it's difficult to see what the tipping point might be, but I think it's coming very close. I think with these rising uh, food prices and, and gas prices, um, the only thing that's missing right now is a the, the, the galvanizing element of a a coherent opposition. We know that that's not going to come from the Democratic Party. It's going to have to come from uh, the, the creative left, if you will. Uh, but the left has to get itself together. But that, that potential for real opposition, Jackie, exists in the U.S. also. People can only be pushed so far. But, uh, you know, we don't see something that's going to be uh, akin to an explosion because people are getting just that desperate. So uh, I think we need to put on our seatbelts and hold on because uh, I think we're going to be in for a bumpy ride here in this country. The left needs to get itself together. I feel like in the past year, on this show, we have been talking about that topic specifically more than anything else, because I think that those of us who are involved in organization, those of us who are involved in political education, those of us who are on the ground in our communities, among the people trying to raise the contradictions that we're all living under and make the connections between capitalism and imperialism and war and exploitation and poverty and sexism and racism and all of the things that oppress us. Those of us who are steeped in this 10 toes on the ground almost every day, 365 days a year, practically, we have felt it seen this tipping point coming, even if we can't articulate what that tipping point is. And this is why, because we know it's coming, but we can't pinpoint what, when and how it's going to hit us. This is why we always advocate that we organize, 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 and we will never back away from that call because it is organization that is going to determine what arises out of the ashes of this empire. But I want to thank Ajamu Baraka so much for joining me today on the show. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new bunch of episode so we'll see you next time peace by any means necessary